Ever go out to eat with your friends? Nice place. Maybe maybe it's a new restaurant. And the menu looks fantastic. There's so many choices. So you're, you're there. You're racking your brain. You're trying to decide between, say, five or six different things that you know you would absolutely love. You ask the waiter to come back once, then you ask him to come back again to give you more time, and even then, you insist that all of your friends order before you, just to give you a little bit more time to make sure you're making the absolute best possible decision. So you've put every drop of mental energy into this choice you have to make. And after all of that, when it finally comes time to make the decision... You just end up blurting out an order, and you barely know why you, why you said what you said. And then the waiter leaves, and it's silent for a minute. And you're just all sitting there before your friend across the table looks at you, shakes her head, and says she knew that you were going to order exactly what you ordered. And the rest of the table chuckles and nods in agreement. So now all that effort... All that time, you're pushed almost to the edge of panic, having applied all of the decision-making skill and energy that you have. And this friend that you met in a Hegel seminar back in college, who, on top of everything else, by the way, is a Giants fan, so, you know, you got that going on. She says she knew for a fact what you would do before you did it, and so did everybody else. Now, what do we make of this story? Is it a sure sign that you're nothing but a robot fulfilling the steps of a simple program that everyone else can see but that you cannot? Well, no, I I certainly don't think so. I think we have a very real capacity to make choices in the world and that those choices both reflect and create who we are. Now, does this story tell us that perhaps I spend too much time thinking about food and specifically food-related decisions? Well... Quite possibly. Quite possibly. For the purposes of this show today, we're going to play around with the idea that's been creeping at the edges of our conversation. We're going to look at what it would actually mean for us, for human beings, not to have free will. And as a reminder, we're not talking about political freedom here. We're not, when I say you don't have free will, I, I'm not talking about we're going to lock you in a dungeon. We're considering the possibility that as human beings in a democratic society with all of what we take to be the normal political and social freedoms um, that we're very much accustomed to, that amidst all of that, we're not at the most basic level capable of making free choices. That in fact, it may well be impossible for such a thing as a genuinely free choice to even exist. That So in this scenario, we're subjects of determinism, right? We used that word a lot last time. Essentially, all these things that we think our choices are in fact just the expression of various influences that we experience kind of working through us like an inevitable equation, not anything really to do with what we think is our own free will. And that's kind of the trick too, right? Not only are we unable to rise above all these influences of physics or biology or genetics or our background or our upbringing or all of those things together, not only can we not rise above those influences to make choices that are actually our own, we're nonetheless living with the delusion that we can. It's almost like we're living in a kind of a dream, and the nature of the dream convinces us again and again that the dream is real. Now, it's a grim scenario, and again, I don't believe it's right. 
But to understand the nature of free will, I think it's essential that we not only consider the possibility of its absence, but really understand what that would mean, what the experience of that would mean for us as human beings. So, welcome to episode three of A Freedom of Ideas. And of course, you know, I normally I, I consider myself, I try and be a polite guy, so I would thank you for tuning in, but after all, it well, it wasn't really your choice, right? You can't even make choices. So what am I thanking you for, your choice to, to, to tune in today? Why should you get credit? Shouldn't I, I thank your genetics or your upbringing or Laplace's demon? But, you know, again, for the sake of our illusion of free will, sure, thank you very much for tuning in. Whatever compelled you to listen today, well, I, I am certainly very glad you're here. So let's set the stage, our premise for today's episode. Uh, again, we are not free. We do not make real choices. We are the subjects of determinism. Be it the determinism of physics and our vastly perceptive demon, or the determinism of nature, meaning our genetics, the other confines of our biology, or the determinism of nurture, you know, our, our background, our raising, our, our cultural biases. However these various factors combine, they do so in predictable ways. And ultimately, that makes us predictable. So we're one stage in a causal equation, and we have no real influence on the outcome of that equation. And again, in the midst of all that, if that's the way things are, if we're really just an equation playing itself out, then there's simply no room for us to have anything like what we typically call genuinely free will. So if you've seen The Sopranos, the television show, in this scenario, we're like Uncle Junior in season one. And for the uninitiated, unless you'd prefer to, to pause the podcast until you've watched through at least the eighth or ninth episode, let me give you the basic idea. There's this guy named Uncle Junior, and he thought that he was the head of the mafia family in New Jersey. But really, all of his lieutenants were taking their orders from his nephew. Now, of course, all of his lieutenants did enough window dressing to keep the old guy happy. They, they laughed at his jokes. They drank to his success. They generally stoked his ego. And when he gave a direct order that did not contradict their other interests, they made a show of going along with it. You know, just making sure the old guy felt like he was firmly in control, but the real control lay elsewhere. The system was not controlled by the man, the system controlled itself. So when we postulate that we do not have free will, we're saying basically exactly this, that there are mechanisms in our biology and psychology that are there to make us feel in control. But in reality, all of what we call our, our choices are the manifestations of a complex web of causal factors that could not possibly make sense to us. These lieutenants in our personal system are, again, our biological imperatives toward comfort and survival, our memories, our habits, our countless social influences. All of these quote-unquote lieutenants come together to dictate our actions, our words, and our behaviors. It's only for simplicity's sake that we get to call everything we do and say the result of our choices. Now, under this idea, part of our determined, predictable functioning is a mechanism that creates the illusion of free will, because that illusion is necessary to the working of the system. Put differently, 
even if the way our bodies and brains operate in the world is entirely determined, even if we don't make anything like real choices that dictate our speech and actions, it's still, for some reason, important that the system make us think that we are making choices. And we'll talk about that illusion and why it's important to this theory in a little bit. But first, let's talk about the core idea that contrary to our beliefs, we do not, in fact, make real choices. Now, if all this seems completely far-fetched to you, and again, I'll say, I don't agree with it, but I think it's important that we reckon with it um, and give the, the argument its best possible due, give it the best possible chance to convince us. Um, and now, again, if you think this idea is, is just silly, if you're perfectly confident that you are a wholly autonomous, uh, hopefully, usually, often rational choice maker, if you are the captain of your ship, well, consider the following. Think about driving. Driving is complex, right? It, it involves choices on every level from the macro, as to say, you know, where are we going today, to the micro, meaning how should I navigate this particular intersection? Exactly how many degrees do I turn the wheel to negotiate this particular corner? And yet, how many times have you been driving and simply ceased to pay attention to the actual act of driving? Say, for example, you're listening to a podcast and the speaker is both thought-provoking and, you know, uh, charming in a sort of uh, a cute sort of self-deprecating way. It's, it's really nice, actually. It's very, uh, very uh, interesting. But yeah, actually, that's, that's, that's off to the side. Let's not talk about that. Say you're on the way to the grocery store. Uh, you've made this drive a hundred times. In this situation, while you're devoting most of your active attention elsewhere and operating seemingly by habit... How many choices are you, capital Y-O-U, quote-unquote you, really making? And, and never mind choices. Are you, quote-unquote, the real you, even really present in this act of driving? Or did you just put the car in drive and put your mind, again, your real mind, to work thinking about other things? Did you stop and consider what to do with that four-way stop? Did you find yourself whispering under your breath, okay, I need, to, I need to turn right here, and I need to stay between the lines, and I need to stay on the pavement, I need to not break the speed limit. As you get closer to the car in front of you, did you consciously remind yourself to take your foot off the accelerator, perhaps do a quick calculation to determine if you'll also need to lightly apply pressure to the brake uh, so as not to rear-end the slower driver in front of you? Chances are, once having made the choice to get in the car, Everything after that happened mostly automatically. The choice-making part of you became superfluous, at least to this act of driving. Now, you could surely argue, if we consider the realities, in fact, our full capacity for choice-making, our deliberative ability, that actually might have gotten in the way. You know, if every roadway transaction is turned into a question that must be posed and answered, well, that's fairly inefficient, right? It's, it's probably actually dangerous. If someone comes to a sudden stop in front of me, I don't want to treat it like a crossword puzzle, right? I, I, I would much rather my automatic responses take over, not even give me the chance to make a quote-unquote real choice. Uh, I want to react to a stoplight without having to go through all of that effort of complex choosing. I certainly don't want every 
turn, every choice I make behind the wheel to turn into this whole tortured business that I got into, you know, for example, with the pancakes in the last episode. So if we view this in the best light, this is the functioning of your brain delegating the easy stuff to quote-unquote lower functions while the quote-unquote high-level part of your mind, as it were, spends its time on more quote-unquote high-level stuff. Even if that's just remembering that conversation you had back in high school and, and just wishing, oh, wishing so much that you could go back and use that perfect comeback line that only, that only just now occurred to you. But consider the alternative, again, for the sake of argument. What if this example is actually a view into the way the system works, sort of being revealed to us? What if we're usually on autopilot, and what if most or all of our choices get made without us having to really make them, quote-unquote, ourselves? If we can confront all of this complexity in such high-stakes circumstances, and, and you know, but by way of a reminder, I know many of us drive every day, we do it all the time, but just think for a moment. We're in a car traveling at speeds that no other animal can readily achieve. We're being propelled by hundreds of thousands of tiny controlled explosions, and we are encased in a potentially hugely destructive sort of ground missile. And we're out there tangling with hundreds of other people in very similar circumstances. So if we can manage all of that without really applying our capacity for conscious thought and free will, well, what exactly do we need all this choosing for anyway? What higher stakes scenario exactly are we saving this capacity for? So go even further into the realm of the absurd. Are you choosing to breathe right now? Are you choosing to have your heart continue beating? Do you walk or, or, or move in any way through the world in a very conscious way? Sort of, do you, are you orchestrating the activity of each and every muscle? Well, no, of course not. Even when you make an explicit choice about what kind of movement you want to make, say that you were walking one minute and, and you choose that you'll start to skip for the next few steps, even then, the choice-making is purely executive. It, it doesn't get down into the level of muscle-by-muscle -muscle control to tell your body how to skip. For most of us, when we're suddenly compelled to pay attention to details on that level, just as, as in the scenario when we suddenly need to apply all of our attention to the car that stopped very suddenly in front of us, that means that things have probably gone wrong, right? And further, we typically find that our choice-making in that situation may do as much harm as good. Often as not, we're better off leaving many of these functions to our quote-unquote non-conscious mental capacity. I should be happy, therefore, that huge swaths of what I do and how I continue to exist are not under my quote-unquote my control. So we can dismiss this by saying that, well, sure, we do not micromanage the functions of our bodies. That's not where our higher level executive choice making ought to be spending its time anyway. This is not a signature of our lack of freedom, right? It's, it's just a proper delegation of functions. Okay, fine. So if that's the case, if there are proper high-level functions, quote-unquote high-level functions, where we apply our deliberative choice-making mind, 
and then other functions where we can and should be content to simply let the system operate without our interference. If that's how it works, where then should we be devoting our choice-making energy? Well, if we've kind of taken a lot of our movement out of, of the, 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 uh, the, the equation, and if driving's not in the, in the equation, how about speech, right? Speech seems like an area where we're very well suited to do some, some real executive level choosing, right? So when it's my turn to speak in the big meeting, uh, I need to, to be at my best, my most real choice-makingest self. So let's consider another example. Let's say you're at work, you're going to explain a, a pretty nuanced idea to your coworker, and, and it's important to you too. It, it requires thoughtfulness and the stakes. I mean, even if it's not life or death, they're, they're important to you. So in this particular instance, well, this is what your capacity for rational choosing is, is really made for, right? So when you're about to speak, do you script out exactly what you're going to say? Do you consciously choose every word? Do you, quote unquote, say it all in your mind and then say it all in the real world exactly the way you'd first sort of practice it? Do you know exactly what you say or do you more or less trust that since you've worked out the gist of it in your mind that your capacity to speak will work it out as you go along, kind of take care of it for you to some extent? Who? So put, put the question in a different way. Who chooses to say the third sentence of the 15 sentences you're going to use to explain this issue to your colleague? Well, what if no one does? Now, presumably you're not comfortable with this. You're, you're calling nonsense, and, and that's fine. So you say you've already made choices just today. You, you chose to listen to this podcast, right? Only to have me tell you that actually you didn't. Actually, it was this sweeping, un unthinking series of causal interactions, most of them too small and too automatic for you even to see or to, to perceive in any way. It was all these little features and uh, factors and, inf and influences that positioned you such that it was more or less inevitable that you had to listen to this podcast. So uh, a butterfly flapping its wings and the tsunami that eventually caused both had as much genuine free agency as you did. Of course, I, I, we feel this is wrong. And again, I believe it to be wrong myself. But for the sake of this exploration, say these three scenarios aren't, in fact, exceptions to, rule, to the rule. Say that they're actually the system revealing the truth of itself. In a moment in which you do anything, you are actually being pushed along by other forces. Internal functioning, reacting to external stimuli that when they're combined in the reality of our, of our existence, they result in our speech and our actions. It's only later in memory that we reconstruct what happens so that instead of being a cog in the machine, we're, the, we're in absolute control. We're, we're at the top of the causal chain, making all the choice making and deciding how it, how it all proceeds through. We drive the story. We decided to skip a few steps to make our daughter laugh in spite of herself. And naturally, we gave the best pitch at work today. And we brought everyone else around to our way of thinking. So all of this, in essence, everything we've been talking about so far, this is the determinist view. 
We don't make choices any more than our cat does or our laptop or just to be sure no one will disagree with me. We don't make choices any more than our calculator does. We have, of course, a more complex set of deterministic factors, but we no more make real choices in response to those factors than our cat chooses, quote unquote, to eat or to take a nap or to go outside or to come back in or to go back out or to come back in. Anyway, to me, at the risk of being vastly overly simplistic, there are two fundamental differences between us and a cat, at least when it comes to this discussion of choice-making and free will. The first is that we're vastly more perceptive, and, and thus we can at least partially trace the influences that are playing out in us. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, we have language. We use language, we hear language, we remember language, we classify things with language, and we are often classified by language. And also importantly, with language, we're forever representing ourselves, right, and and others as well, as being the authors of our very much independent choice making. So take another example. I'm walking by a yard where two kids are playing catch. One of them throws wild. The ball is coming right at me, but it's just outside my field field of vision. At the very last second, when it's right in my peripheral vision, I duck out of the way. Hey, maybe I even catch the ball and coolly toss it back. Well, when I tell that story later, right, you can bet that I'll be talking about what I did with my, well, you know, my cat-like reflexes. But... What role did, quote-unquote, I really play in that transaction? Was it because I was intentionally scanning my surroundings, reminding myself to be ever vigilant, ever on the alert? Or do I owe my lack of bruises to the entirely mechanical functions of my eyes, my brain, and my body, such that I, again, quote-unquote, I can really take very little credit for what I did? If we're If we keep playing along with this idea that we are not free, that we don't have this capacity for free will and choosing, then why do we think that we are? Presumably, we accept that, say, a a tuna fish does not have free will, but it also doesn't think that it has free will, right? It, It gets along just fine swimming around in a very reactive way, never having to confront these kinds of existential crises when it's revealed to it that to it that in in fact it's not making real rigorous choices to eat that you know I, I don't know whatever a tuna like a minnow or whatever now from a naturalist perspective the answer has to lay in evolution the evolution of the very specific kinds of creatures that we are if we think about free will or again the perception of free will this illusion this necessary important to us illusion that we have free will if we think about that only from the perspective of its role in our growth and survival of, as a species it it you, you kind of start to see why it becomes so important to us that we think we have free will and perhaps even more importantly importantly that we think other people have free will Again, whether they actually have it or not. Think of it this way. With free will comes responsibility. The two ideas are inextricably linked, as we've discussed. 
If I am free, then I'm responsible for my choices. If I'm responsible for my choices, then I can be held accountable for them. If I'm not free, am I therefore not responsible? Can I go on a crime spree and later use the Laplacian demon defense? To look more closely at this, let's take a very, very imaginary trip back in time. Say that we're in and amidst some of the earliest human language users. Now, these folks will have the, the most basic biological capacity to use language. That, that, that's in place, though by all accounts, it does seem like that capacity, of course, grows and develops as we both individually and uh, generationally continue to use language more and more, but uh, I'm really way out of my depth here. Uh, imagine where you observing folks who use language in what I would think is its most rudimentary form, to represent important things in the world and to convey necessary information about those things. So, in essence, I'm limited to discussing where there is shellfish to eat and where there are tigers who want to eat me. So imagine, in that context, that I steal your shellfish. First, there will presumably be consequences for me in this scenario. So, if we put it differently... I act, I produce an action, and as a direct consequence of that action, the world changes. I took your shellfish, now you do not have shellfish. Naturally, you do not like the way the world has changed from before my action uh, to after it, so you associate your displeasure with me. And all of that is really actually pretty significant when you think about it, especially we, when we consider how language itself had to expand to accommodate some of these new concepts. What if you only heard that I stole your shellfish? What if you saw your empty shellfish basket, and then you saw me on the other side of the fire eating shellfish that you don't remember me having had before? That kind of association in and of itself, the fact that you can associate person, action, and change circumstance and arrive at this conclusion that, well, it's about time to bash me in the head, I, you know, all of that is actually pretty striking when we think about it from an evolutionary standpoint. But let's stay focused on what's important in this for our purposes. The first time one early language user stole another early language user's shellfish and was, therefore, we assume, punished for doing so, a kind of a new idea was invented. Now, probably it, it wasn't even a word yet, not, not right away, but there was an idea, and there was all of this external action to make that idea very real indeed. That idea is responsibility. Now again, I am not an evolutionary biologist. I am not anything that even vaguely resembles an evolutionary biologist. And even if I was, I don't think I'd have access to anything like a verifiable history of the specific development of language and behavior that we're talking about here, right? Obviously, this proceeds by many, many, many generations, anything like writing. But doesn't it stand to reason that there was a first time that one human being judged another human being to be responsible for something. Now, chances are, I assume that there are actually hundreds, maybe there were thousands of quote-unquote first times before this idea took hold and, and turned into one that was understood in one or more communities of early language users. 
And, and let's be clear again that in none of these instances was the word responsibility or, you know, whatever the equivalent would have been. In none of these instances was there an actual word resembling responsibility. You have to think about the, the framework of language that must have been in place before an idea like responsibility could possibly have been spoken in a sensible way. It's a word that, you know, like many of my favorite words around here, it's a word that needs a lot of other words around it before it's going to make any kind of sense. So you don't go from shellfish, tiger, there, and run as your entire vocabulary, vocabulary directly to a notion of ethical culpability expressed in speech any more than you could, for example, build a 12-story balcony on a two-story house. But even without the specific word, note that we have all the building blocks of the idea of responsibility that will presumably eventually be denoted and defined by the word responsibility, or again, whatever its equivalent turns out to be. So we have responsibility. The idea has begun to function in our community. But what about choice? What about choosing? Now, haven't I been saying all this time that these two ideas, free will, choice, choosing, and responsibility, that these two ideas have to go hand in hand? So if we've got responsibility, where is the idea of choosing that I've been saying has to go along with it? Now, my belief, and I really have to call it that, as this is entirely a speculative exercise, as, as I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm making clear, my belief is that the notion of responsibility had to have emerged first, before anything like a notion of choice or free will or any of these other ideas uh, that we now link so tightly with the idea of responsibility, before there were any of those other ideas, there had to be this notion of responsibility. And again, though this is speculative, I, I do believe that there's something very sensible about it. A very rough notion of responsibility can emerge with only the very basic language to support it. Again, just, just the notion. The word, I'm sure, comes a lot later. But, but you know, we can imagine scenarios whereby early language users are judging one another to be responsible for something, even if they are not necessarily using that word. Whereas, by contrast... Even just the idea of a choice, quote-unquote, that's so much more complex. It depends on so many other explicit parts of complex language. Responsibility, when you think about it, yeah, it's very complex, but it's fundamentally, uh, it's a very practical notion to incorporate into a version of human interaction that, you know, I assume would spend much of its time and energy worrying about matters of immediate life and death. So there's no need to explore the idea of choice in the scenario above. There's no immediate survival value to debating notions of my capacity for free will or not. It's taken for granted, more or less, that I chose to steal the shellfish. So much so that nothing like the idea of choosing even has to factor into the scenario. It seems entirely reasonable to me, again, in this speculative scenario, given what we can suppose about how and why a language related to interpersonal behavior would develop, it seems very rational to me in that scenario that we would arrive at a notion of responsibility long before we begin to consider the idea of quote-unquote choice and free will leading to a circumstance in which I am deemed responsible. 
So now, wind the tape forward a bit. And please, again, understand that I have no idea whatsoever how far into the future we need to go to get from these first instances of theft to the first instance of someone talking about theft or a thief. But at some point, these early language users started talking about the time Corey stole that shellfish. Maybe they're doing this to codify some kind of lesson about, about how that behavior is not acceptable within our community structure. Maybe they're doing it just to laugh at what happened to me as a consequence of my having tried to be a thief. thief. But the key point is that at some point, this idea of theft, of deception, of a presumably bad act, this idea was represented in language. Now wind the tape forward quite a few more hundreds and thousands of years. Instead of early language users, we are now very complex language users. Instead of small, presumably tribal-style communities, we live in cities. We live in states. We live in civil societies. The question for us at this juncture is, could we possibly have made that progress without a notion of responsibility and accountability. To put this whole thing differently, there are many reasons that tigers do not have cities, but among the most pertinent of those reasons to our discussion is that a tiger has never lied. A tiger has never been caught in a lie. And a tiger has never thereafter earned the consequences of lying and being called a liar. But, you know, enough of this. This is, it's all uh, the lion tigers that we can bear. I'll say again, it's all the lion tigers we can bear. And what's funny here, as an aside, um, of course, it shouldn't be surprising as I'm sitting here entirely alone in this room that I'm not hearing any laughter in response to that statement. And yet, and yet, is the fact that I'm here alone in this room the primary reason why I am not hearing any laughter in response to that statement? But that's a question probably for entirely another day. To bring us back to our central discussion, can we agree that in the long course of this linguistic development, that, that in all this time we've spent using language and building language and reusing it and, and almost layering it on top of itself, year after year after year, generation after generation after generation, that in doing that, we cultivated the notion of responsibility to such an extent and with such complexity and with so much language built around it that we arrived at the notion of choice as a consequence of all the talk that we were doing about responsibility. So again, we talk enough about responsibility, eventually we have to start talking about choosing. We have to start talking about free will. As we learn enough language, we begin to differentiate between instances where my actions caused harm and I was directly, purposefully at fault for those actions, and then other scenarios where my actions were compelled or were just sufficiently thoughtless to create a negative outcome that I had not foreseen, that I had not planned or really, quote unquote, chosen. As we begin to define these vagaries of responsibility, and as, again, we create a more and more and more words and ideas to surround and further define this notion of responsibility, 
It's that process, I would argue, where the ideas of freedom and choice began to emerge and to attain their own definition, their own nuance, their own vagary and uncertainty. It was in this process that we became able to think of freedom very much the way we do to this day, as an idea on its own. Of course, again, we have no idea about the details of any of this, and I more or less assume we never will. Maybe we can see echoes of this process when we read uh, truly ancient works like, uh, you know, Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is a great example. Um, in, in Gilgamesh, you don't ever hear about anyone ever sort of intending to do anything, right? They act. They're all the time they're running around acting. They are doing things. They're doing things for a very explicit reason or they're doing things for no reason at all. And after they act, they might feel regret or they might feel that they might feel pleasure as a consequence of their actions. But we never hear a lot about the quote unquote motivations, the intentions behind their actions. Unless, of course, those motivations were presented as the consequence of prior actions. So Gilgamesh, for example, regrets the death of his friend Enkidu, therefore seeks to travel to the afterlife. The section where he hems and haws and uh, sort of uh, predicts Hamlet's soliloquy by numerous millennia and when he's trying to decide what to do and how should he respond to his friend Enkidu's death, well... If that part of, of Gilgamesh uh, ever actually existed, it certainly never made it down to us. And all this by way of saying, it changes our perspective on these concepts when we recall that at some point in the very distant past, we actually invented these concepts. Now, again, it took centuries, and it's a process that is surely still evolving. And it will continue. It'll still be evolving for as long as we keep using language. But these ideas, they are inventions nonetheless. Which, by the way, is very different than saying that these ideas are, are less real or less meaningful for having been invented. I'm pretty sure you could argue, and actually I'm pretty sure that at some point I will at least try to do so myself. I, I'm pretty sure you could argue that the way these notions, these ideas came into existence, if if you take my telling to be even vaguely accurate, if there's even a hint of truth in that, that makes these ideas all the more meaningful and all the more worthy of our veneration and at least our consideration. But that naturally is a whole nother conversation. So my supposition, my answer to the question, why would we have a mechanism that makes us believe we are free, even if we are not, my response to that is this. If we imagine how we must have developed from the earliest language users to beings capable of hugely intricate social interactions and relationships, for our species to have developed as it has, we needed to at least believe that we have free will, even if we have nothing at all actually like free will. If all of our choices are the results of outside factors conspiring to make those choices for us, there's still a real value to our believing that we have free will and, again, believing that others have it as well. None of the history, literature, or philosophy that I've read suggests that we as a species have ever or could ever function in the societies we've created 
without some kind of notion of responsibility. And that notion might vary culture to culture, society to society, uh, period of history to period of history. But there's still something like it there. And again, in every case that I've seen, and I certainly have not seen every one, this to me, in a way, is, is the most feasible aspect of the theory that we actually don't have free will. This is what makes it a little bit unnervingly convincing to me. If we didn't have free will, we'd still need to pretend that we did for our species to be anything like what it is today. Now, just as a brief aside before we continue, we see this notion of accountability cropping up as a political issue. Some folks are worrying that we're too quick to punish people whose actions could be explained in ways that reduce their culpability. Now, an example of this would be uh, referencing someone's mental health, uh, maybe that they were acting in a state where they were not uh, actually able to make real choices the way we would typically define them. So that's one side of the argument. Then the other side of the argument is worrying that when we do that, when we put caveats on our culpability, we kind of risk plunging society um, into this anarchic state where we can't punish criminals. And how will we survive without being taken over by brigands and ne'er-do-wells for whom there simply no longer will be anything like real consequences? Now, even if my tone of voice suggests that I obviously have an opinion in these matters, I have no particular interest in wading into the details of that conversation here, aside from saying this. The fact that we've developed notions of consequences and accountability that are codified in the laws that we mostly agree to live under doesn't mean, none of that means that, it, that this needs to be written in stone, set in, a, in just one particular way for it actually to work. Uh, what I mean is that flexibility and adaptation are not threats to our society. They're not threats to these ideas of culpability, responsibility, or even free will. This, this flexibility is the, the capacity to bend at the juncture that, that keeps society from shattering under the slightest change. The system is supposed to adapt. These ideas are supposed to evolve and change because the system cannot ever be perfect. Now, are we likely to overcorrect in one direction or the other as we figure these things out? Well, well yeah, of course we are. And we see, that, we see that at pretty much every stage of our development. And it's my opinion that these mistakes are actually the signatures of the system working and evolving just the way it should. That when we go a little bit far, we do tend to recognize it. Even if we don't do so explicitly, we do tend to recognize it and begin to turn back in the other direction, which again, to me, is a signature of the system working the way it should. But it does point the conversation in a slightly different direction that I think it's important we consider. If we think about our real experience of free will, and yeah, sure, let's just switch back to presuming that we do indeed possess that capacity. I know I haven't actually proved it yet, but I think we'll do that next week, or maybe have to continue doing it week after week after week, and maybe that's actually a good thing. But in any event, hopefully for now, just trust me, uh, we're back to having free will, all is well. In any event, think about our practical experience of free will, of free choosing, of accountability. How do we talk about these ideas on a day-to-day -day basis? 
Often, when, when all this is being considered philosophically, meaning really abstractly, all of these ideas seem quite absolute, like light or darkness. We are either free or we're not. We either bear responsibility or we don't. But of course, the way we're talking here, and I believe this reflects reality, the way we're talking here is far more complex, far less absolute. Not every act of choosing is one that we isolate from all possible deterministic factors, uh, like a, that rather gruesome process of breakfast deciding that I went through last week. In, in fact, none of our acts of choosing are that. A and that's perfectly fine. None of our acts of choosing are totally isolated from deterministic factors. And as we saw in that pancake example, that's actually not just fine, that's, that's somewhat preferable. Certainly, there are all manner of very important decisions, you know, whether to breathe, whether or not to put one foot in front of the other in just such a way, whether or not to apply the brakes. These are very important things, and yet we more or less delegate them to our automated selves most of the time. So if this idea of free will is in fact fairly malleable and fairly not absolute, how does that play out in our day-to-day? Well, think about times that we are willing, or even inclined, to attribute more or less agency, more or less free will, to our fellow human beings. For example, let's say Bill just stole my Philly cheesesteak. Well, in this instance, of course, I'm inclined to grant Bill an absolute capacity for free choosing. In this case... I'll say that Bill is entirely free, that there were no outside forces mitigating his choosing or his responsibility. Bill, with malice aforethought, did perpetrate to confiscate my cheesesteak in a wholly premeditated way. I'm angry at Bill. I want my sub back. Or, failing that, I want compensation, and I want there to be consequences. Therefore, to me, Bill was 100% free when he chose to pilfer my hoagie. But now take a different example. A coworker is angry, telling me about how, how Bill just kept interrupting him over lunch. Well, it, it turns out this whole uh, cheesesteak fiasco notwithstanding, I really like Bill. He's a good friend, and, and maybe I'm the one that recommended him for the job he's in. So now my attitude is very different, right? Maybe I point out that, you know, Bill grew up in one of those houses where everybody was always interrupting each other all the time. And so he really doesn't know any better. In this scenario, I want to give Bill the quote-unquote benefit of the doubt by, for all intents and purposes, removing or at least mitigating his capacity to choose. Removing or mitigating his capacity for free will. Now imagine if the tables are turned and it's me that stole Bill's lunch. If I'm caught red-handed, well, do I immediately fess up and accept that stealing Bill's lunch was my choice in no way mitigated by outside factors? Well, maybe, but isn't it a bit more likely that I'll suddenly be very willing to part with this vaunted and much-loved notion of free will that I've been really cherishing up until this particular moment if if giving up that free will will also get me off the hook. Ah, oh, geez, I was so hungry, I wasn't thinking straight. I had no idea Bill would be so upset. I forgot my lunch, 
I didn't have any choice but to take half of Bill's. Now, in each of these instances, I'm very happy to manipulate the notion of free will and thus, again, the notion of accountability and responsibility as if it kind of exists on a sliding scale. In the same way that I seem willing to delegate driving to a function of my brain that perhaps is a level below or maybe to the side of the most quote-unquote conscious aspects of quote-unquote me, I'm also strangely comfortable in each of these instances with this idea of free will, this idea that I sometimes defend as absolute and inviolable, I'm comfortable in each of these cases having it kind of ebb and, ref- and flow in response to the contingent aspects of the situation and how those aspects ended up influencing me. But we can take this in another direction as well. What if I'm talking politics with Bill, and it turns out that we completely disagree on one particular point, and and not a minor point, by the way, but one of these uh, increasingly frequent, uh, absolute, one side believes A, the other side believes Z, and there is no bridging the gap, these sort of politically defining issues. You certainly know the ones I'm talking about. Uh, The kinds of issues that are so important that it's impossible that anyone could think differently about them than I do. But in any event, maybe that's not the best definition, but we'll have to let that to the side for the moment. Faced with this discovery, it seems like I really have two possible choices. I can either do the very difficult work of admitting that Bill has considered all of the information of his disposal, thought it through in good faith, and as it turns out, come to a very different conclusion than I have. Or, alternately... I can shake my head, I can say Bill watches the wrong news shows, and that he doesn't have access to the right information, and thus that he never really made the choice that he says he did. If Bill had the right information, of course he would have made the right choice. As it turns out, circumstances, outside forces, made up Bill's mind for him. As such, incidentally, we don't really disagree It's not that Bill has a different opinion than I do, it's just that Bill never managed to arrive at a valid conclusion. Bill never even made a choice in the first place. Doesn't disagree with me, he didn't make a different choice than me, he never made a choice at all. Now, perhaps this is so commonplace that we we may well miss out on, on just how significant it really is. In just one conversation, I've managed to demote Bill's personhood. A belief that is very important to Bill, maybe even defining to Bill. Well, in fact, I've decided it's not really a belief at all. Bill thinks he made a choice, but lo and behold, I disagree. Bill thinks he exercised his capacity for free decision-making, but I say no. I have decided that Bill did not, in fact, have free will when arriving at what is a defining decision for himself. So what else do I remove from Bill, or at least from my picture of Bill, my opinion of Bill, when I do this? We tend to think of free will as being a fairly important feature of what makes people people, right? Throughout, I've been talking about the idea and and linking it arm in arm with these other ideas of morality and consciousness and reason, really all of the fundamental aspects of selfhood and personhood. But in the course of a single conversation, 
I've decided that Bill doesn't really have it and that maybe he never did. So when I dismiss Bill's free will as non-existent, how much of the rest of Bill am I dismissing along with it? Sadly, right now, we're not really equipped to talk about this in greater length. Not yet, but I, I think we will be, and this will be actually more relevant once, once we start getting into the long-promised social and political aspects of free will. So for now, we're going to leave this behind. Um, maybe I should throw in some mawkish platitudes about what a shame it is that we're so divided as a nation, but I guess I'll do that during the, the editing process. Uh, but one thing to underline more seriously is how important I really do think this is. This kind of sliding scale that we employ to let people be more or less free, more or less rational. Again, at least in our opinion, and as suits the situation and our own view of the world, now, it seems very commonplace. It, it is commonplace. But if we find, as I think we will, that the real strength and importance of these ideas is, is drawn from our interactions with one another. It comes from our, our, our interconnection as a society as a whole. That's what makes these ideas meaningful and viable. Well, if that's the case, then it seems to make a very important difference to our practical experience of freedom if we make the if we kind of put the idea on a sliding scale that we can move as we see fit depending on who we're talking to and what we're talking about perhaps a useful exercise if i can ever so briefly take on the extremely ill-fitting mantle of life coach pay attention to this make note as best you can, how frequently you demote someone else's capacity for freedom. Just take a little mental note every time you assume, for whatever reason, that someone else did not really make a choice in the same way that you did, or with the same capacity for validity. Then make note of how that changes this person for you, as you consider them uh, more holistically. At the very least, make note of how perhaps these considerations aren't really so abstract after all. It turns out this is not at all the work of ivory tower philosophers. Most of us spend a substantial chunk of our time granting and rescinding the capacity for freedom in our fellow human beings, and even in ourselves. And that being the case, I guess it's a good thing that we're taking the time to consider the causes and implications of these freedoms that we so easily bestow or deny. And I'm sorry to say this is where we're going to have to leave it today. When we come back next time, we're going to take uh, we're going to take back our free will. We're going to come to grips with determinism once and for all, and we're also going to talk about this quantum physics notion and the role that it plays or maybe that it does not play in the way that our minds work and in the way that we ultimately want to explain and understand free will. I certainly do hope you'll join us. Now, and remember, you're, you're back to having free will now. I, I wave the magic wand and, you know, you're good to go. You're making choices all over the place. You know, even if I don't quite know how you're doing that yet, but yeah, that details, details. We'll, we'll get to that, I promise. So, of course, you know, now we're kind of in the somewhat awkward position of you can tune in or not as you see fit, but I certainly hope that you will. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>